Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of The Picklist. I hope you're having a good week. Now I'm going to jump straight in and tell you about this week's guest, Annabelle Macon-Jones. Annabelle is a fifth generation farmer from Yorkshire. She's particularly well known for growing strawberries and she's the founder of two brands, Annabelle's Deliciously British and Tame and Wild. Now Annabelle is incredibly entrepreneurial and I think you'll be blown away by her passion for farming, for the countryside and for British produce. And I think you'll also find it really interesting to hear her take on export opportunities for British, the impact of wonky fruit and veg on the market, and why she thinks farmers and growers desperately need to become better at marketing. Now, of course, we also talk about the big issues. We'll talk about labour shortages, and this is growing season, which has been so very tough for growers, um, not actually just because of labour issues, but also because of the weather. Now, if, like me, you read lots of articles about issues like labour shortages at the moment, I think you'll find it really valuable to hear firsthand from a grower about how these issues are actually playing out on farm at the moment. I certainly found it really valuable to talk to Annabelle, and I was really grateful to her for sharing her experience with us. So that's coming up in a moment. But first, let me bring you up to speed on the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. In the wake of fuel supply issues, there were fresh warnings of a nightmare at Christmas, with some analysts predicting consumers will face reduced availability and higher prices this year. The government has put army drivers on standby to help with the fuel crisis and says it is confident the food industry is resilient and will be able to cope during the festive period. Tesco is said to expand its use of a train service between the UK and Spain as part of efforts to reduce its environmental impact and protect it from disruption caused by the HGV driver shortage. Tesco currently transports 65,000 containers a year by rail and wants to increase this to 90,000. As I'm recording this, the takeover battle for Morrisons was said to be decided by a one-day auction this weekend. The two bidders, Clayton de Billier and Rice and Fortress Investment Group, will go through up to five rounds of bidding to settle who will get to acquire the retailer. The government announced 5,000 HGV drivers from the EU will be granted temporary three-month visas to help alleviate driver shortages, but feed and logistics bodies told the grocer those drivers were unlikely to be on the road until the second week of November. Deliveroo unveiled a new rapid grocery delivery service called Deliveroo Hop. Hop will be run in partnership with Morrison's, offer delivery within 10 to 15 minutes, and it will run initially in London. 
Now, staying with online grocery and, in fact, with Morrison's, the retailer announced it would stop doing store picking from 50 stores as online demand continues to ease. About 1,400 staff are affected by the move. Research into gene editing of crops is set to become easier in England after the government announced the easing of regulations. DEFRA Secretary of State George Eustace said gene editing could help the UK tackle challenges around climate change and food security, but critics say it's not a long-term solution and doesn't address underlying issues. The WWF published its 2021 Palm Oil Buyers Scorecard, which assesses retailers and brands on their sourcing of palm oil. Ferrero and Ikea were among the brands highlighted as leading globally, whereas in the UK, John Lewis scored highest. The Guardian published a major investigation into the European meat industry, saying it had found poor working conditions and exploitative practices at many meat plants with subcontracted workers particularly vulnerable to exploitation. In response, various European and UK retailers said they would cut ties with any suppliers found to be in breach of standards. And finally, makers of plant-based meat alternatives face higher costs because the cost of peas has soared in the wake of drought in Canada. French company Roquette, which is one of the leading processors and suppliers of pea protein, said the sector was facing an unprecedented situation with challenging availability and price increases that would likely have to be passed on to consumers. These are the big stories this week. You can find links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and also at thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Annabel Macon-Jones. Annabelle, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for having me. Now, you are a third generation farmer from Yorkshire. You're a grower of premium produce. Fifth generation. (laughs) Fifth generation. Wow. Um, But you're a grower of premium produce, particularly strawberries, and the founder of two brands, Annabelle's Deliciously British and Tame and Wild. So you've got a really interesting spread of activities. I have loads of things I want to ask you about. But I thought let's give listeners a bit of a crash course on you and your background so we have some context first. So tell us about the family farming business. What are your family doing farming-wise and how did you personally become involved in the business? My grandfather was based at the farm where we are now. And then my father... And then me, I arrived 17 years ago and started the strawberry enterprise with my father in year one um, and was not supposed to stay, was going off to do my own thing and basically uh, was very much needed and, and knew I was always go home. So decided to stay. And, you know, we've gone from having a 15 acre field in 2004 to now having um, over 200 acres of uh, tabletop strawberry production under uh, t- uh, polytunnels, um, which is around 400 kilometres. So from where we are in Yorkshire all the way down to London. Um, and we're wow. now growing almost 2,000 tonnes of strawberries uh, for different enterprises. Um, but Annabelle's Deliciously British is one is one of the premium brands that I own. And so when you say you, you're growing for a number of different customers, there's obviously the stuff that goes into the, into the brand, but do you also do retailer own label? Do you do restaurants? What does your customer base look like? Yeah, so I do retailer own brand. 
Um, and then I do our premium strawberries into the Annabelle's brand, which does go to restaurants, wholesalers, um, Fort Mason, Spinney's in Dubai, Harrods, Whole Foods, Ocado, Booths, um, Japan, Hong Kong, and um, we've just done a trial run to New York. Very exciting. And I'm so interested, actually, in your trial to New York, because we do have an opportunity to talk a little bit about the US market later. So I'm very interested to understand what you're seeing there and how it compares with the UK. But tell us, why strawberries? Were your family already involved in strawberries in any form? Or was that something that you decided to introduce? No, they weren't. Um, there was a, a real gap in the market. Um, and also in terms of um, farming, you know, growing crops, cereals, potatoes, you know, the, the, the margins are so tight. Um, and 17 years ago, you know, strawberries were not in um, the supply, you know, the, the, the demand exceeded the supply. So we decided to start them in 2004. Um, and, and since uh, a lot of other people have done the same, but now it boils down to the best quality, the best growing, the weather. Um, and I think also where you add value, where you're doing other different things to show why you're the best grower. And that's not necessarily just growing the berry. It's all the other things behind that. And I guess that takes us actually to your brands as well. Just tell us a little bit about your two brands, what they stand for, what kinds of products you do with them. So when you supply a major retailer, you don't get to talk about what you do on your farm. You are all under one name and, you know, you are producing strawberries en masse um, with no with no real thought for anything other than the commercials. I really care about the industry, but also the countryside and doing things for others. You know, if we can do what we love and enjoy that, but do good things for others at the same time, I think we should all be trying uh, to do that and, and be better people and, and, and give back to, to others that are less fortunate than us. So I decided to start a brand where I could talk about the fact that we harvest all our own rainwater, we have a 50 million gallon lake, we um, produce all our energy from solar panels, um, we use biodegradable packaging and um, we also um, provide our waste strawberries to an anaerobic digester to create power to create our packaging and the there are many many other things that we're doing um, this year we introduced two million bees so that our bees pollinate our strawberries so we're not bringing bees from Holland um, and we actually then harvest some of the honey in the summer you know so we now got strawberry pollinated honey so we've got the full circle of life but again you know, we're looking after the countryside, we're um, investing in nature and, and, and the bees. And then every product we sell, we make a donation to the Prince's Trust. So when you buy our products, you know that you're giving to somebody less fortunate than you to help them, you know, in, in, a, in a career for them or to do something that they maybe wouldn't have been able to do. So it's all about having a great product and doing your shopping, but also knowing that when you buy anything with my name on, that you can trust me that you know I'm sustainable and I'm truthful and that when you see Annabelle's Deliciously British that you know that everything about that is transparent and um, doing the best it can, it can do in all, all sorts of different areas. 
And speaking of that Annabelle's range, what products do you have under that brand now? So obviously, primarily, we started with strawberries, and then I wanted to become zero waste. So we started making jams and chutneys, um, which is incredibly difficult, actually, because we are trying to compete with 98% of jams and chutneys that use strawberries in this country, use Chinese or Polish strawberries. So price-wise, you know, we cannot compete. Um, But I wanted the more educated and and possibly more thoughtful consumer to have the option of buying British fruit all year round and a premium variety of strawberry. So we introduced the jams and chutneys. I also grow forced rhubarb and I also make jams and chutneys with their waste of those. Daffodils, um, cherries now. uh, And so the range has grown. And then in the offshoot of Annabelle's is Tame and Wild Drinks, which is all natural, sophisticated, sparkling drinks but they're all natural in terms of everything that is, that is in them is either from the field, the garden or the hedgerow. So, and they're also very low in sugar and low in calories. So they're also very good for you. So they were aimed at the people that care about where the food comes from. You know, we should all care about what we're drinking too. So the kind of the whole group is, is about, um, the, our ethos is about knowing the provenance of your food and drink and actually that it's good for you too. Fantastic. Now, we are going to talk about some really big issues today, some of the big issues affecting not just the fresh produce sector, but the food industry, lots of industries actually at large at the moment. The articles you've picked are right on the money in terms of, you know, what's in the news right now. So labour shortages, we'll talk about supporting British farming, and also the role of brands in fresh produce. But before we do that, I did want to quiz you a little bit more on your business and some of the trends that you're seeing in the market at the moment. And we're having this conversation right at the end of September. For listeners who aren't close to the fresh produce sector, can you just talk us through what's happening on farm at the moment? Where are we in the growing and production cycle? What does your day-to-day look like at the moment? So we are about 45 tonnes of strawberries a week. Um, it's been very warm. It's been very settled weather for us for September. You know, if we get really cold start to September, it shuts us down very quickly. Our season is generally from May. We didn't start till June because we had that terribly cold month of May. So that pushed everything back. Um, it then gave us huge peaks and troughs um, when different fields start. Um, and then um, the whole country ended up having fruit at the same time, which caused chaos for everyone. Um, so we're now we're still seeing peaks now because of the warm weather we've had. And it's interesting that people think, oh, well, you know, that's a bumper crop. You don't get a bumper crop. It's just when the fruit actually decides to arrive on the plant. The other issue is, is that you have glasshouse producers who start to produce strawberries around the beginning of October. They're using carbon dioxide. They are using heating. Uh, you know, they're in glasshouse. Their costs are significantly higher than ours. And they are now picking at the same time as us. And actually, um, you know, there's too much fruit around at the moment, especially when, you know, we we know that people are buying in Dutch because it's cheaper than the English, which is even more heartbreaking. So um, it's been difficult. It's been difficult. Labour's been difficult. Um, People have walked away from hundreds and hundreds of tonnes of fruit left in the field. And not only that, we've had huge problems with logistics, deliveries. lorry drivers deciding they don't want to deliver something and dumping uh, the fruit in the middle of a yard somewhere else and just leaving it there. 
and then we have no we can't do anything we can't say to the haulier well you know you've got to pay for that they've all pushed for force majeure um and we're left holding you know carrying the can and holding the bill basically so we have had an incredibly difficult time and and um unless unless something's done with regards to labor and this is just not just picking strawberries this is across logistics and so many other industries we're going to be in a terrible terrible mess and you've already talked about the fact that obviously from a weather perspective this year has been incredibly challenging as well just give us a sense of sort of a little bit of historical perspective how was this year's growing season compared with previous years um so we had frost up until 13th of may generally the last frost we get will be the first second of may and what happens is the flowers form on the plants and even though we have doors on um and we we have a fleece on them which is like a thin duvet because they have to be able to breathe um the frost still got in you know the frost at night when we're all fast asleep gets down to minus seven minus eight there's nothing we can do and it basically turns the center of the, the strawberry flower, which is yellow, it turns it black and kills it. And so we lost 45 ton of fruit before we'd even started, you know, just killed the flowers. So not only did that make us later, but it also took 45 ton of fruit. And then because we all started, as in when I say all, I mean Kent, Herefordshire, Yorkshire, Scotland, all started at the same time because we'd all had such dreadful weather. We then just saw a huge boom in production and we just saturated the market. And so, you know, we just couldn't sell the fruit. And that then meant, I mean, I had a, a field with 60 ton of beautiful morning centenary strawberries in. Uh, it, it was utterly heartbreaking. And we just walked away and we left it and just watched it rot on the plant. Um, and that's that's the decision sometimes that you have to make. It's not worth picking it, the cost to pick it and everything else. Like you just can't, you have to know when you're not going to be able to sell it and make the right decision and walk away. How do these peaks and troughs affect your export markets? Because you mentioned a little earlier that you do have quite a sizable export business as well. You do sell into countries like Dubai and Japan. How has how have those markets been affected this year? Um I think the main thing for them is specifically somewhere like Japan, which is all about size and, and how the product looks. So they are very particular. So we pick with a specialist team for them. Um, and so then as soon as we're short on labor or as soon as, you know, that the, we don't have a lot of fruit that size, therefore it's going to take longer to pick it, that would be the the market that we would switch off because we have to concentrate on the other markets and and picking the fruit when that takes so long so you know our japan market was cut off at the beginning of september which was a real shame um because we could have carried on going now with them and they really wanted us to but we just couldn't because we just didn't have the people to do that all the time and when you say you are picking for Japan with a specialist team, what exactly, how are they specialists? What do they need to be able to do that the, the other pickers perhaps don't need to do? Well, it's just that we take a certain amount of them and train them particularly on what Japan wants. So the size, the shape, the colouring, how it's packed. You know, It's all place packed for them as either 12 or 15 pieces in a punnet for them, uh, laid on a foam mould. Um, 
all for the bakery market. So we will train a specialist group of, let's say, 15 to 20 people to do that. And then they are the ones that then pick for Japan, just so we absolutely know that the quality is correct. Because what we can't have is poor quality pickers. So then it costs even more money when it goes into the pack house because you have to start all over again. And, and you don't want to be touching the fruit twice. Um, and the, the cost, we just can't swallow the cost. I'm so interested in what you were saying, actually, about those sort of very particular aesthetic standards, because we obviously have a really live debate here in the UK as well about, you know, are we too picky? Are supermarkets driving unrealistic standards? We've had lots of discussion about sort of ugly produce or wonky fruit and veg. Have you seen those standards and those specs become a little bit more generous? Are we as consumers, as British consumers, more interested in taste than looks these days? I think some people think they are. I think people want to believe that they're not as picky and that they've broken away from the, what the supermarkets have trained us that we want, um, because that's ultimately where it comes from. Um, is it true? No. You know, you, you can see when people pick them up, they're looking to see what size they are. Are they all the same? You know, nobody wants a big strawberry with a small strawberry. It, 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 no, the spec is still very, very much there. And, and um I don't think that will change. The only thing that the supermarkets do offer now is something called a wonky berry. So that's, say, a, a, a strawberry under 25 mil in size. And you can put it in that and they sell those cheap. But the problem is the cost that you're paid for them doesn't actually warrant picking it. Also, the consumer's like, oh, yeah, I'm fine with wonky. And what they don't actually realise is that when they're buying wonky, they're buying the cheap stuff. And that the, 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 the stuff that we do actually need to sell in the supermarkets to keep the farmers farming. Um, the wonky's just gone and undercut it and and it doesn't actually help sales for the for the farmers at all really so let's talk a little bit about your articles because they'll give us an opportunity to actually go into some of these issues in a little bit more detail before i turn to your first article i just want to ask you a little bit about your reading habits are there any trends and developments where you're always like i definitely want to read about that or any trends that you're keeping a really close eye on Definitely technology, because we are so labour intensive, you know, 63% of our costs are labour. So as soon as we get a minimum wage rise, it has a huge effect on us. So in terms of developing um, uh, software or robots or, you know, what can help us become less labour reliant, that's definitely something. Um, I think from a perspective of new products, um, what other value can we add rather than just taking the raw product what what else can we do to it to add value for us to earn a little bit more money but I also think how we as farmers or particularly agriculture become better at marketing ourselves beyond the supermarkets because the supermarkets are not marketing us and our industry they're selling a commodity um, and it's how we become better as a group to try and find our space again that we really are hugely important um you know out of everything with covid what was the one thing that people needed more than anything was food and so um just to gain a little bit more respect i think i think we've become very much forgotten and i think we've allowed that because we've become a slave to the retailers and we've very much been dictated to and then there's no there's no way of fighting back because you have you don't have the power so I think if there is a way of us 
being able to hold our own and stand our ground and say, actually, acknowledge that we're here and what we do and give us a fair price. And I think possibly that has to come through marketing and, and us fighting for who and what we do. But you are, you know, when I look at your social media, for instance, but also when I look at your website, I mean, you are, you're pretty active as far as that stuff is concerned. And you really are telling the story of what goes behind your brand. Do you see that as the primary sort of channel of communication for consumers where where farmers can perhaps level the playing field and directly talk to consumers? Or do you think it also needs to happen on a more collective level? basis where entire sectors speak as one yeah I mean my voice is tiny on social media as much as we try and we do we actively post and we actively try to educate people about for instance the strawberry jam the fact that you know the majority of the people listening if they go and turn the back of the strawberry jam around they'll see it just says strawberry it will never say English it will never say British it may say that it's made in England but it will never say grown in England because they don't use British strawberries um, those types of things we need we need a way to to get to the consumer first and and to share this information with them and things like this like podcasts and people listening you know that's great that is so helpful I mean Jeremy Clarkson has probably helped more than anyone um, because you know he is for the mass you know the masses love him or hate him but they still want to watch him um, and he he has pointed out so many things that you know we all go through like don't um think a farmer that talks about the weather is moaning and this is actually how much I made so don't think it's a way of life and that they're having a great time because it's not true so he's probably done more good than anyone to be honest so could just do with him going to a strawberry farm <laughs> maybe for season three yeah. um now let's let's talk about your your first article you've picked something from the guardian and the headline is the anxiety is off the scale uk farm sector worried by labor shortages and the headline here really tells the story doesn't it um, i mean this is an article that came out i think roughly about a month ago but of course it's an issue that's absolutely stayed in the headlines and it's only becoming more urgent. Um, and just for context for listeners, I'm gonna pick out a few bits and bobs that really caught my eye in this piece. So one of the growers interviewed in the article is a blueberry grower who says he is missing about a quarter of his seasonal workforce and he's predicting as much as half of his blueberry crop will go to waste this year. There's mention of a pepper grower who's only able to harvest every 11 days instead of every three, again, because there aren't enough workers. There's mention of fields of courgettes going unharvested, again, because there aren't enough any workers. And of course, it's not just in fresh produce, as you've already mentioned. There are all sorts of farming sectors and other sectors that are suffering from labour shortages. Now, as the article explains, a key factor driving these shortages is Brexit and the changes to the immigration system post-Brexit, with the loss of unskilled seasonal workers from EU countries like Romania and Bulgaria. But the pandemic has also played a role here, because it's limited cross-border movement, of course, and it has seen schools of workers opting to stay in their home countries. Annabelle, you've already alluded to how your own business has been affected by by shortages but just paint the picture for us how what percentage of your workers have you lost or, or what's the shortfall at the moment so we were probably at about 68 percent of what we should have been this year and we have managed to get through 
um, by the skin of our teeth. Um, but, you know, this, this is a huge problem. And, you know, when our fruit is ripe, we cannot hang, hang back and, and, and leave it for a day or leave it in the cold store because it just will not, it will not stand up and then we don't get the shelf life for the consumer. Um, we just haven't seen Romanian and Bulgarian workers returning. They've had other opportunities elsewhere. Then they brought in an SWP um, labour, which, which is uh, people from the Ukraine, and they gave 30,000 visas. We actually need between 85 and 100,000 people, you know, seasonal labour for agriculture. And we had 30,000 visas. And we know that uh, something like 1.3 million workers left the UK when the pandemic started and returned to their homes. So labour force was massively down. I mean, you know, we couldn't pick the fruit. There's pig farmers, you know, that haven't haven't got the staff. The slaughterhouse is only working four days a week. There's a lack of new cars. It's not just us. It's it, There's a huge problem. Um, and they... You know, they've really got rid of the unskilled labour, but that unskilled labour is so necessary. Um, and they're wanting us to make long term investments in the UK domestic workforce. But in theory, you know, we can do that. But that that has to get passed on down the line. You know, you cannot remain at the price that they're paying for strawberries when you have a business built on 62 percent labour and the price is going up. You have to be prepared to pay more for your food. And that's, of course, always the key point that gets brought up in this discussion, isn't it? That when, you know, people will say, well, why don't you hire more British workers? And if you can't get British workers, why don't you pay them more so that you can get British workers? What would you say in response to that? And have you tried to get more British workers? Yeah, we have. We've tried several times uh, last year, particularly when people were on furlough. Um, We had the best part of 10 people of which six left on the first day and the other four lasted over three days. And the problem is, it's, you know, we have to be in that field at half past four in the morning. People don't want to get out of bed. They don't want to do it. And then, you know, it is, it is a hard manual job and just doesn't sit right with people. You know, if they, if they're not particularly um, fit, then, then they're not going to going to be any good. And if, um, they don't want to get out of bed. They're not going to be very good either. So, you know, we can go and pay them more, um, but they won't be very quick. And that then just drives up the cost. And, you know, there is no getting away from it. We have tried with English workers and it just, it's just not an option. And so what do you think would make the biggest difference to a business like yours? Uh, what, what would you want to see from government? Well, they need to increase the amount of um, permits for SWP labour. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm most certainly not a politician, um, but somebody with some uh, knowledge of agriculture, horticulture, this industry needs to look at it and say, hang on, you know, I go and spend time and, and see what the problems are that we face and actually understand our industry without so rather than making decisions based on numbers or what they think they're actually living what we what we are um i mean the worst thing is is that swp labor is only for agriculture so they can't go and work on anything else so things like my daffodils in january i can't use swp labor 
right. to go and get my daffodils because they're classed as ornamentals. So that's not food production. So therefore, we're, I dread to think what the daffodil season will be like. And we're going to stay with labour issues to an extent when we talk about your second article. Um, this is an opinion article that appeared on Politics Home, written by Theo Clark, who is the Conservative MP for Stafford and also the co-chair of the Parliamentary Group for Fruit, Vegetables and Horticulture. The headline here is, We Must Back British Farming 365 Days a Year. She is writing this uh, to express her support of Back British Farming Day, which took place a little earlier in the month, 15th, I believe, if I remember correctly. But then to also say that we shouldn't just support British farmers on those special days, but year round. And she's arguing for two forms of support in particular, and one of them touches very much on what you've just talked about. So she wants to see the government's seasonal workers pilot scheme made permanent, so growers would find it easier to recruit labour. And I believe she's also calling for ornamentals to be included in that, so that what you just talked about in terms of not being able to use those workers on your daffodils, for example, that that ceases to be an issue. She also wants retailers to make it easier for consumers to choose British produce. And what she is suggesting in particular is a dedicated aisle just for British produce. Now, we've talked about labour quite a bit already, but I was interested in this idea of what retailers could do to support British growers and make it easier for consumers to back British what do you make of this idea of a dedicated aisle? Is that what's needed? I think it's a really good idea, but I think we have to go back a few steps and I think we have to look at something like the red tractor. I think we have to be clear as an industry what we feel the stamp of approval should be for the very best of British and then roll that out. We need to be stronger as a government and as a nation about what we allow. So I think we need to go back to basics. Uh, uh, an aisle for British is fantastic, but the retailers will turn around and say, well, that's fine in the summer, but in the winter, how do we keep that aisle for British? You know, we might have some cabbage and some cauliflower and some broccoli. Uh, we've got some potatoes that have been in a store, but actually what else do we fill it with? Um, so I think it's a lovely idea, or even if it's a couple of, you know, like like the ends of an aisle or whatever. I think it's a great idea. But I think if we could really have a stamp of approval, and I think that we've become very confused with, with a kind of stamp of approval. Again, to hark back to my jam, I think if you take that as an example, you know, there's all this fruit all over the UK right now that's being dumped in holes. And you say, well, goodness me, why isn't it being used for jam? You have to take the calyx out, the, the green bit at the top, the removal of that. Your labour's so expensive, you have to remove it. And then you get it processed. So you've got the fruit that's more expensive. It's more expensive to pick. It's more expensive to grow. And then you have to remove the calyx. And then you have to freeze it. And then you have to process it. So people say to me, why is your jam so much more expensive than X? Well, actually, because they say their jam says made in England. It doesn't say... British or English strawberries and that's because it's Polish or Chinese so the reason that those strawberries are brought in is because they have much lower uh, wages than us and therefore the fruit is much cheaper to pick and to grow so that it can be it can be shipped frozen into the UK and turned into jam cheaper than us using our own strawberries 
Now, I can understand why, from a commercial perspective, they would do that. But if we as consumers don't turn around and say, well, actually, no, for the extra £1.50 a jar, I am going to buy British because I am being more sustainable. I am being loyal to what's grown here. I know the quality. I know the standards it's been grown to and turned into jam. Um, actually, no, that's really important to me as a consumer that I have that option. And unless people get behind that, you know, what I'm doing now, it's a real, real struggle. So unless they get behind it, unfortunately, um, you know, it, it just, it's not viable for me to continue to do it because uh, of the price. And during COVID in particular, we heard a lot about changes to shopping habits and consumers, or at least large groups of consumers, being more interested in supporting local producers what impact has that had on your sales and have you seen that interest be sustained or are people going back to old habits? Um, I mean, we definitely saw an increase in our branded sales last year, um, generally because people couldn't go on holiday and people were shopping online more. So we are a big supplier to Ocado. Um, this year, less so. Um, and I honestly can't tell you the answer to that at the moment. I do think more people have gone away because they've been able to. Um, but also, is it because things are opening up so they keep their disposable income for other things, like so they spend less on food? I'm not quite sure what the answer to that is, but I would really hope, because last year we did see such a huge interest in what we were doing and, and the provenance and the sustainability and you know everything everything that defined our brand was really celebrated by our customers. Um, I don't think it's totally gone away, but I guess people have had, you know, people are in the position where they make decisions about where they can save money and maybe it's more of a luxury this year than it was last year because there wasn't anything to, uh, else to spend their money on. Now, I want to take you on to the third article, um, which is um, a piece from Fresh Fruit Portal, and the headline is New Study Reveals Demand for Branded Produce. This is a US study, I should stress, but I was really interested to talk to you about it. What do you think it takes for a brand to have an impact in fresh produce? I think people like people. I think people like to think, they, they know where their foods come from. They know the farm. They know who's behind it. They know what who, who the person is, but also what their values are. So they almost align themselves with you. So for me, my brands, both of them, are basically built off the back of what I wanted as a consumer. And um, I want to know that when I buy British, that I am actually buying British. I, I don't want to be questioning the labels on things. I want, I want people... To be truthful um and that's what i want my brands to be seen as you know honest truthful no hidden nasties in my drinks no you know nothing replacing sugar that's pretending to be sugar that's actually even worse for you you know just really honest about what's in them how we're growing them and and that we're doing our best to do that and and you know we may not be at the forefront of technology we may not be um, some huge companies with an investment company behind them. We are a family business who 
have uh, five generations of roots within agriculture. And, you know, there are not many young people going into agriculture and following in families' footsteps like I am. It's a dying industry. Um, and I hope that when people do look at our social media or buy our products that, you know, that they know that we're doing our very best by Great Britain, by agriculture, but also by the consumer, giving them a great product at a price where everybody in that supply chain can actually earn a living. And I think what you're putting your finger on is that a brand does have to stand for something. There needs to be meaning behind it because I think you know when sometimes when I hear these discussions about wanting to see more brands in fresh produce but also in meat and you know very similar kind of own label dominated category is it can't just be driven by a desire for growers or producers to make better margins or to have some kind of branded presence there needs to be something that the consumer can get their head around that they understand they're buying into because if there isn't then actually the retailer brands are the more powerful brands and and probably do a better job of engaging the consumer. Yeah, absolutely. Generally, a branded product is more expensive. And if you're paying more money for something, there should be a reason you're paying more money for it. Now, I did also want to talk to you about this article because it has that US angle. Um, And the US in many ways is actually more advanced, isn't it, in terms of how many brands there are in fresh produce compared with the UK. Now, I was very interested to hear that you do have this trial in New York at the moment. What have you learned about the fresh produce market in the US and how it differs from the UK? Well, I haven't yet, to be honest. So it's only happened this week, but it's very exciting. Um, I th- I think it's going to be extremely interesting for me. But what I do think I already know is that the things that Annabelle's Deliciously British and Tame and Wild Drinks actually stand for, um, that Americans or, or some Americans will absolutely get behind. Now, although it's not an American product, it's coming from the UK, they generally have a respect for British products. Um, And the fact that we can get um, product there cheaper than they can get it from California tells you something about them having their own issues with logistics and labor and, you know, growing of product. But not just that. the quality of our product is exceptional and I think it'd be very interesting to see the feedback that we get and then once we start properly next year of how um, how the American housewife if you like um, actually buys into the product week on week and whether it's just a fad because it's there and it's and it's English or actually it, it becomes you know a household staple so I guess it's a case of watch this space at the moment. I don't want to commit to too much, um, but I, I, am, I am fairly positive that it will work. Fantastic. Annabelle, we're out of time, but if people want to connect with you and your brands, where can they find you? What's the best way to get in touch? Um, well, social media is great. So Instagram, Annabelle's Deliciously British and Tame and Wild Drinks. We're also on Facebook. And also go on our websites, annabellesdeliciouslybritish.co.uk and tameandwilddrinks.co.uk. We're always, you know, we answer every day, 
have a good look on the website you can see the video of the farm and how we harvest and um, watch the video of how the fruit comes down from the field within 40 minutes into the chill unit and then gets packed so you can follow the whole process so do have a look brilliant Annabelle thank you so much for being my guest thank you Julia thanks for listening I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful if you did please consider giving the pick list a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review it tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue and it helps me reach more listeners if you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.